Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Between the years 2000 and 2009, farmers planted 7.2 million acres of new corn in this country. Almost all of that 10% increase was used for ethanol rather than food. The thought was, and still is for many, that using ethanol in our car's gas tanks reduced the need for foreign oil and was cleaner to burn, so it was more environmentally friendly. Now, here's some irony. The increase in corn production for ethanol may have contributed in the large decline in wild bees, which are needed to pollinate several crops in our food supply. That's one of the findings of the most extensive research conducted into the decline of wild bees published last month. One of the study's authors is our guest today, Dr. Eric Lonsdorf, who is a professor of ecology, evolution, and behavior at Franklin and Marshall College. Dr. Lonsdorf, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. And coming up in a few minutes, we're also going to be joined by Claire Kaufman, uh, who is with Kaufman's Fruit Farm and Market. And he has a lot to say about uh, this topic today because he may be the future when we're talking about uh, sustaining wild bee populations. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. We have heard a lot about colony collapse, mm-hmm. honeybees, over the last decade or so. This is different. How is the decline of wild bees different than the decline of honeybees? Well, the decline of honeybees uh, is, you know, the managed bees are really required uh, and used to pollinate a lot of our crops. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of other unmanaged or wild bees out in the environment that visit the crops too. And a lot of uh, Farmers uh, up until recently have not kind of integrated the use of and kind of the understanding of wild bees into that pollination. And so uh, as the concern for managed bees has been increasing, there's been a a renewed focus or a new focus rather on the use of wild bees as kind of a backup uh, or a way to stabilize and ensure our crop pollination for years to come. Now, throughout the program, I may ask you to clarify mm-hmm. some of the things. You just said managed bees. That's right. Are you talking about uh, honeybees in, in that case? Yeah, so uh, honeybees are one form, and uh, actually some native bees, since uh, managed bees or honeybees come from Europe. They don't right. live here on See, their own. See, that's one of the things a lot of people probably don't know, that honeybees are not native to this country. That's right. They come from Europe, uh, and that's different from, like, the Africanized uh, bees, which is another kind of honeybee that's coming up from the south and probably won't reach us anytime soon. We hope not. That's right. Um, <laughs> but the managed bees or the honeybees, um, yeah, they're they're you know there takes a lot of work to maintain a colony, uh, and the kind of the revenue from all that management, uh, which is the life of a commercial beekeeper, it's getting harder and harder, and the cost of those managed hives has been going up over over time, and so. Because that's a major uh, input into the fruit production of a lot of farmers, uh, it gets harder and harder to kind of produce and uh, make money on their crops because the cost of that input is increasing as well. And so there's more and more impetus, not only for the supply of the managed bee, but the cost of the managed bee going up makes it more, um, uh, I guess, motivation to support wild bees as kind of a backup. All right. There are about 4,000, maybe over 4,000 species of wild bees in this country. What are some of the wild bees in the, that uh, we would see here in central Pennsylvania that most people would be familiar with? Well, probably the most, what we call charismatic of all bees would be the bumblebee. Mm-hmm. Okay, the big black and yellow bees that we've seen, you know, movies about and that sort of thing. They're fuzzy, um, 
a lot of them are you can oh my i pet them when they they fly to flowers my kids uh, i've taught them how to pet them now those are male bees male bees don't sting because they don't have the ovipositor that's the stinging part it's hard to tell them apart of course um you pet bees yeah they're very docile when they're flying around okay and, how and do you, visiting the flowers i'm afraid to ask how you know the difference between the males and the females well i risk it okay really. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're a wild man you know that <laughs> uh, but that's i think those are the big ones there are also some small kind of bright green colored bees um they're called agapostomum that's the genus um but those are also very i think charismatic pretty as mm -hmm. you might say if you take a closer look and then there's lots of little tiny bees that you probably aren't as aware of um, that do a lot of the work as too. Okay. okay. Now, when you say do a lot of the work, I, I may, I'm going to ask you some very basic questions. Sure. One of the reasons this is so important, or the major reason this is so important, is that these bees, these wild bees, pollinate plants, crops. Uh, let's start by defining pollinating. How do they do that? What do they do? Well, they, as you may have learned as a kid or seen, the bees fly to the plant. They use pollen um, to uh, support their offspring, so they bring it back to the nest. And when they do that, as they walk around the flower, they will then transfer pollen from one plant, uh, from the anther to the stigma, and that leads to the fertilization and then the fruit production. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, so now you've led me into the next basic question is, why is this so important Again, we've heard so much about honeybees, but why is it so important with wild bees? Well, they do this naturally. They're living out and about, so that's a, basically something we get from nature for free. Um, and so if we can support them and their populations and maintain them, we basically get this free service or what we kind of generally call an ecosystem service, a benefit from nature uh, that humans receive. Mm -hmm. And we have on the phone right now Claire Kaufman, who is the orchard manager at Kaufman's Fruit Farm and Market. Uh, Mr. Kaufman, thank you for being with us today. Hi there. Great to be with you. Yeah. And I'm going to bring you into the conversation here in a few minutes because uh, you are maybe an example of the future of what we have to do to sustain the wild bee population. So uh, if you'd like to jump into the conversation at any time, go right ahead. But right. I want to, again, back get back to some of these basic questions. This research that you did, Dr. Lonsdorf, uh, described as some of, the, some of the most extensive. That's right maybe the most extensive that has ever been done in this country. I mean, so important that the president of the United States, the White House, directed that there be something, look, you know, that there be research into the state of not just wild bees, but the bee population overall in uh, June of 2014. Uh, what was that that you were telling me before the show that you actually had started working on this beforehand? It's not just you. You have some other partners that uh, you're working with. That's right. So my role in it, I'm kind of the analyst. There's people who study the bees in the field who've been studying bees kind of their entire careers, uh, and I work with them and help translate their information into these predictive frameworks. So helping to develop that national map is a major collaborative endeavor that took several years. Um, the president's kind of memorandum, or kind of for more research, uh, targeted three types of pollinators, uh, the managed bees, uh, wild bees, and again, those are both required for pollination. And again, um, and the last was uh, the monarch butterfly, which is just kind of a flagship um, species that everyone cares about. And so one of the things they asked for was an increase of habitat of 7 million acres. 
um, for land. And so the question became, where do you put that? Where should we, where's the best place to put all that habitat kind of at this, at the national scale? And so our assessment provides some sort of first guidance on what to do with all that, you know, where to put that extra habitat. And so one of the, the logic we used was that, well, where do we need it as humans? And we need it best where we have lots of crops that require the bees. And so we kind of referenced um, the need for pollinators based on where those crops were. What kind of crops are we talking about with wild bees? Well, most of the major fruits that uh, people like to eat, there was kind of a nice demonstration of this. Uh, Whole Foods a few years ago uh, removed all uh, fruits and vegetables from their shelves that uh, were supported by bees. And so you can kind of go and take a look at this very dramatic change in their their. Um, kind of what's on the shelves. Uh, but for example, like in Pennsylvania, the people that are working on, with it on the study, the pumpkins, all the squashes, uh, which include uh, watermelon and cucumber. Uh, blueberries is another big one. Uh, cherries, apples, um, just to name a few. Okay. Uh, let me bring uh, Claire Kaufman into the conversation now. Uh, Claire, why were you interested in uh, this research and doing something to sustain the wild bee populations? Well, uh, like Eric had um, talked about just, just a bit ago, um, bees, these wild bees provide an ecosystem service. And, you know, as a farmer, um, noticed how, you know, there's this ecosystem service out there that essentially over the last number of years we've destroyed. It used to be free, and, and now, we have to pay, now we have to pay for it. Um, via getting honeybees um, into our orchards. So kind of tracing back our steps to the time that we had um, what these bees needed to thrive um, in our farms is, is kind of what um, prompted me to, or piqued my interest in, in uh, bringing back uh, more wild bees to our farm. Did you actually see a difference in your crops with this uh, decline? You know, my history there is not so long, so I don't know. You know, we've we've been we've had honeybees in for for many decades, and you know, other farmers might might have seen a bigger difference over time. Um, but you know, for us, the increase in the cost of getting the hives in is another reason why there's been a renewed interest in the orchard industry to to uh, look at wild bees because there's so many problems with the honeybees, um, and then it's like oh. Here's something that we've had all along, and we didn't know it, and possibly we've been um, we've been harming them without knowing it. Uh, so yeah, we have seen we have seen differences, um, and we even see differences from different areas of our orchard that might have better habitat than others. Really, like what? I mean, describe that if you would. Okay, so for example, we have an experimental block where we where we use no herbicide, and that block clearly has more bumblebees, which are ground-dwelling insects. Um, so, you know, there's just a clear example. You know, I see bumblebees flying quite a bit in that orchard during bloom uh, relative to our other orchard blocks. Mm. Eric, you were about to say something? Uh, yeah, so what, we don't necessarily see a decline in the production of the food, but what we do see is that the cost of that production going up. It right. gets harder and harder to kind of bring in the managed bees, which were, um, you know, I think the cost of the uh, hives themselves have gone up. I think Claire probably can speak to the, the cost of that a little more um, explicitly, but 
I mean, I know that it used to be under a hundred dollars, and now in some places it's uh, hitting close to two hundred dollars per hive. So yeah, I, I had read that it had doubled. Uh, yeah. did you see that, Claire? Yes, it's a, it's at least doubled for for most people. Yeah. Mm. So here's one of the big questions, Eric. Why is this happening? Why, uh, you know, we, uh, and again, I'm going to separate uh, the, the wild bees from the honeybees. Uh, why the decline in the wild bee population? Well, we suspect, I mean, there's could be a number of factors, but one of the big things is just the loss of habitat, as you as you pointed out kind of in the opening yeah, the description of the piece. Ethanol, That's right. Yeah. yeah, so some places are still doing okay, and um, are, there are some, you know, improving habitats, like, for instance, Claire's been working hard to improve the habitat for wild bees on his farm. Um, uh, but in a lot of places around the country, particularly like the Dakotas, uh, the Sacramento Valley, kind of major uh, sources of food for in the country uh, where there's been an increase in corn, we see um, some declines in that. And those are also um, just coincidentally key places where the managed hives manage bees and honeybees are located throughout their life cycle. So they move all around the country throughout the year. They spend a lot of time in the Dakotas. And so this issue where we've targeted or identified places where we might be concerned for wild bee habitats are also places of concern for managed bees or honeybees. So while we have increased the production of corn by 10% in the last 15 years or so, at least my statistics had it from 2000 to 2009, uh, what habitat for bees was eliminated to plant that corn? Well, we suspect that it was a lot of uh, pasture. Um, so pasture for cows can also be fairly good for bees. Anywhere where there's a lot of tilling, um, as Claire mentioned, uh, a lot of uh, native bees nest in the soil. And so when you start digging up that soil, you remove a lot of the nesting habitat. And the corn uh, pollen isn't quite as nutritious for wild bees as some of the, kind of the natural forbs and flowering plants as well. So I would guess you're not a big fan of ethanol. Well, I, that's a kind of a social value judgment, <laughs> all right? And so I think our goal is not to kind of cast disparaging remarks at the okay. corn industry, right. but rather to say, you know, that you know there are some trade-offs out there. We, if we want biofuels, we should be strategic about that and also consider, you know, some of the other natural benefits that are out there, like wild bees. That's so I very think it's, diplomatic. <laughs> Claire, well, you starting true. to say something? I was just going to add that, you know, in addition to tillage, uh, you know, regular mowing has also uh, diminished the uh, available habitat. That's right. What, what, why? Um, what do you mean? Well, because some of the, a lot of the uh, wild bees would also uh, nest in, like, dead stalks of, of right. uh, you know, plants that have grown for a season. Um, and then, you know, if we mow all those down at the end of the season, then that destroys their nest why are, are we mowing more why are we mowing more um i i guess i don't know <laughs> i don't know all the reasons there's certainly some benefits to keeping your edges mowed because there might be weed seeds there that come into your crop um but you know it's there again it's this cost benefit um approach you know you, you you have to be mindful that if you're if you're doing something for one reason you might be you might be destroying another ecosystem service that that um could be more valuable to you. So, yes, yeah, so I can. And just, and just our efforts to, to you know, if the, if the real estate's valuable, um, you know, where I'm at in Lancaster County, I mean, it, it's edge to edge, field to field. I mean, there's just very few woodlots and hedgerows anymore in 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 my in my area, and so that's 
you know, we, we've we've taken that away to maximize our crop yield, and and now we don't have the ecosystem services that used to be available to us in the hedgerow. Yeah, so I was gonna kind of jump in with, um, so when you provide habitat for some of the beneficial insects like bees, there is some concern that you might be providing habitat for you know pests and detrimental insects, yes. and so yes. that's the the trade off that Claire is kind of mentioning that that's the right. mowing may get rid of some of those detrimental. And so, yeah, there is ongoing work to figure out kind of what that balance and kind of incorporating those trade-offs are. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing the declining wild bee population and its impact, and actually the research into that, with our guest today, Dr. Eric Lonsdorf, a professor of ecology, evolution, and behavior at Franklin and Marshall College, and Claire Kaufman, orchard manager at Kaufman's Fruit Farm and Market in Lancaster County. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. We have a couple of e emails here before we get to the phone. Roger in York County emails, are Dr. Lonsworth's findings available to the public? If so, where? Penn State's master gardeners, for example, are doing a pollinator preferences statewide citizen science study that is being administered by uh, York master gardeners. They, as well as members of the general public, are interested in findings such as Dr. Lonsworth's. Uh, yeah, so the study and the paper uh, can be found in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, and maybe there'll be a link. Yeah, we can put a link on our website, WITF.org. Okay. All right, and then also um, we kind of created a little policy document that summarizes some of the major findings, um, and um, the kind of project website called the Integrated Crop Pollination Project, or ICP, icpbees.org. Uh, you can go to that website, and there will be more information there as well. Now, the paper is uh, open access and freely available to, to everyone. Okay. Uh, we have an email from Jim who asks, We live in a condo with a deck where we have some flowers and herbs, but very little land. What can we do to promote bees in our situation? I knew this was a question that would come up because we have so many people who are interested, even if they're not living on a farm, they're, they're not living in the country, they're living in the city, living in the suburbs, but what can regular people do? Well, I'm not uh, an expert at rearing bees. I kind of do this kind of satellite-level analysis for a living. Um, but I do know in talking to some of my colleagues that, you know, it's a lot of common sense putting up uh, flowering plants uh, and then kind of checking to make sure that those plants are, you know, uh, native to your region. So there's a lot of ornamentals out there. So I encourage you to plant native. Plant native. Okay, let's take a phone call from Timothy in Littlestown. Timothy, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Yeah, I've been raising bees for years since I was 10. I'm 56 now. I first started raising them wall on my house on my farm up in Michigan. I got some important information. All right, one of the top of bees you're talking about is a solitary bee. Yeah. For nation. If you grow raspberries, don't cut your old canes down. Leave your old canes up because they use them to raise their okay. babies in. Another thing for the uh, bumblebees, if you can get some old tires and put, like, hay or straw or yeah. grass or something, you know, the clippings in there, they'll raise their things in that. For the butterflies, don't pull the milkweed plants. Leave the milkweed plants on so they can, uh, you know, lay their eggs and raise their young. 
Okay. And also, they were saying about not seeing their results of pollination. If you notice when you buy apples in the store, sometimes there's seeds missing. That's a pollination problem. Hey, Timothy, thank you very much for your call. Oh, and I would add, yeah, that reminds me that so um, bumblebees will also nest in leaf litter. So if you have little leaf piles, like areas where you don't need to clean up all the leaves and can leave that over the, over the winter and into the spring, they like nesting in that. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, one small. thing I was surprised, though, a little bit, uh, what Timothy was saying, though, about old tires. Uh, now, he mentioned putting hay in these old tires, covering them up, because one of the things we do have to be concerned with is water in old tires and mosquitoes. So if you cover up those tires, you're okay? We're just so that the water can't uh, gather there. Yeah, I mean, that seems right. I'm not, uh, okay. not going to speculate on that. Uh, <laughs> okay. One thing I do want to ask you before we uh, I want to turn to, to Claire in just a moment what he's doing on the fruit farm. Uh, but something you talked about a few minutes ago is, you know, we were talking about the reasons that this is happening, that uh, there is a decline in the wild bee population. And you talked about the row crops and uh, planting of corn corn, soybean, things like that. Uh, One thing that many people probably would assume right off the bat is that it's because of the expansion of the suburbs that people are building more houses. What used to be farmland is now uh, housing development. That's not necessarily the case here, is it? No, I wouldn't. I think um, we still see a fair number of bees, and I've had some uh, colleagues and grad students in um, Chicago when I used to work there. Uh, do work doing kind of urban pollinator sampling. In fact, some of the places where they found the highest diversity of native bees uh, were in kind of uh, nice parks surrounded by land and so um, by houses and urban land. And so I think that there's a lot of kind of uh, structure and undisturbed soil and a lot of flowering plants. People lots have lots of gardens. And so it's really in these huge industrial farmland areas where we see lots of uh, intense management of the soil and a lot of heavy mowing and herbicides that we see a huge decline in bees. The Sacramento Valley in particular, where their, their field sizes are enormous. So in the, in the Northeast, we have much smaller uh, farm field sizes, so a lot uh, more opportunity for hedgerows and edges, as Claire mentioned, that uh, when they go away, those edges um, support a lot of bees. And so in rural, or, um, sorry, in urban areas and residential areas, we see a lot of that edge habitat. We see a lot of hedges and flowers and, and things that, that can provide for bees. In Sacramento Valley in California, when you say that they have these huge uh, plots of land, what do, you, what do you call huge? Like like almond farms, for example, that are like 100 square miles of almond. Really? Yeah. So, you so see we're not like, even talking acres then? No, we're talking like, yeah. Huge. <laughs> well, so there, so there, there's like a burst of pollen, right? So like for a month, there'll just be a bonanza, but it's 11 months of the year. There's nothing. Okay, so they're heavily mowed, uh, and so there's been a lot of work. The almond industry, in particular, because all the almonds come from it's a several billion dollar industry. Um, they're the ones that are most concerned about kind of the decline in honeybees. Mm -hmm. So, Uh, so Claire, I want to turn to you now. Uh, Claire Kaufman is the orchard manager at Kaufman's Fruit Farm and Market. Uh, You described a little bit of uh, what you're doing, or at least how you got interested and why you wanted to do something. Talk about what you have done to try to sustain this wild bee population. 
Okay. Um, so I guess this, this after my interest uh, began to grow, um, was made aware of, of conservation efforts coming from um, the NRCS um, and, and the Xerces Society. NR, and, uh, NRCS. What's NRCS? Uh, National Resources Conservation. Okay. Uh, Service. Okay. Service. Yes. <laughs> okay. And um, so uh, they they uh, you can work with them uh, in the, to, to to acquire grants from the federal government to to install conservation practices on your farm. And so as I began to explore it, I, I realized that there's just a whole lot that goes into um, um, intentional and informed. Uh, conservation um, practices and and especially in regards to the particular crops that we're raising um, you know I just don't want to go out there and start shooting from the hip in terms of um, implementing some of these um, implementing some of these uh, plant designs and so uh, what happened eventually was that uh, the NRCS uh, Kelly Gill uh, she's a pollination specialist from New Jersey wrote a conservation activity plan for our farm that has quite a few recommendations for for what we can do to uh, improve um, wild beef uh, pollinator habitat. So just to say probably, you know, several main things. Um, one is in every way that we know how and can to um, carefully use um, pesticides in a way that mitigates uh, damage to the bees. So that's something, you know, we've been doing for a long time and we're conscious of and yet have a long way to go and and are trying to find ways to not um, to not harm the wild bee populations with what we use. Probably most importantly is the whole thing of habitat on the edges. Because regardless of your regardless of your crop management strategy um, in, in your field, if you have a habitat at the edge that they can thrive in and that's pesticide free you can maintain the population uh, quite well so that's that's been another big focus looking at all the edges that we have quite a few you know how can we start to when we replant an orchard how can we start to put in um, put in some type of uh, non-crop planting at the edge and that's where I'm getting help from the NRCS, you know, what type of plants should go in there. And I, I really am interested in, in perennial shrub tree planting more than I am just the wildflower planting because they're easier to um, easier to, to maintain once they're once they're established. Well, well, kind of, well, well like what? What kind of perennial uh, shrub are you talking about? Well, anything as high as a locust, uh, black locust tree, which flowers in the spring to, you know, you know, small, small plant uh, shrubs. Um, oh boy! Uh, you know, even even just having mulberries in your hedgerow. Um, it, in fact, quite a few of these are fruiting plants, which right. is another one of my interests. It's like, man, I love to go out there in the hedgerows and and the ones that we do have and and gather wild fruit. So, um, but obviously, many things that that don't necessarily have fruiting potential, but flower at some point through the year. Um, staghorn sumac, you know, considered a weed by many. Um, but it, it has it has a lot of pollen that that the wild bees like. See that uh, that would surprise some people because you're right. Most people would chop that down uh, sumac as much as they as they can. Yeah. I yeah. understand you also have a row of clover. 
Uh, okay, so th- th- I was about to describe the, the third thing that I'm doing. I, I'm, I got a very small experimental plot where, where my goal there is actually to integrate into the orchard the, this polyculture, um, rather than just having it at the edge and a monoculture in the middle with my apples. I'm, I'm, I have a planting of apples where I'm shooting for maybe 50 species of plants in the apple orchard, uh, in the row. And in the in the alley or the drive lanes, I'll have a mixture of, of clover and grass. Um, so, you know, it, it has yet to be seen how well it'll work for the apples, but I I have a fair amount of confidence that it it, it will be uh, buzzing with activity throughout the year if all goes well. How often have you used that buzzing with activity uh, line over the years? <laughs> huh? uh, <laughs> um, now, what you're talking about, just to, to clarify, uh, when you're planting grass, you're planting uh, clover, you want to make sure that, you, with your experiments, you want to make sure that uh, the crop, the apple crop, isn't harmed, but at the same right. time that there could be something there that uh, that the, the wild bees can use. Right, right. Okay. All right, let's take a phone call from Mary in Lancaster. Mary, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. I had this, what I thought was an interesting experience this summer. I was in my backyard, and I looked. I have four big holly trees. I looked at the holly tree at the base of the tree, and it looked like a log was there. I thought, well, that's odd. Somebody's moved a wood log over. I went in the house, put on my glasses, walked back outside, started walking toward it, and I realized it wasn't a log. It was bees. It was a large bunch of bees. What looked like a hive, perhaps, had fallen on the ground. And it just looked so strange. I thought, that's funny. I haven't had any hot bees around because I have a perennial garden right there. <clears throat> so anyway, I went inside, called a friend of mine who has a bee, keeps bees. And I came back outside in about an hour, and they were gone. And I thought, well, he must have come and taken that hive. So I called him, and he said, no, I didn't come. There is no real hive that they just glued together somehow and they all left now is that crazy or real that sounds like the twilight zone to me but go ahead uh, eric what's what's going on there well i'd say it's 50 50 crazy <laughs> or actually something happening but i i'll, I'll honestly st- it did happen no no I believe- <laughs> i'm just kidding um so i think that probably what happened and i'm speculating uh here but it may you may have seen a uh, bee swarming and so when they're moving hives they actually can leave. They call it absconding. Um, bees will swarm, and you may have seen basically bees kind of hunkering down for a minute before they they all left together because they are social bees. There may be someone on air listening who knows a fair a little bit more about that, but I would guess it was you. You experienced a swarm. Now, would that be wild it bees? Was I mean, it was probably two feet long by eight inches wide. Yeah, yeah, that was probably a swarm of honeybees. That uh, was uh, okay. either the hive was dividing. Um, or they were okay. leaving their hive. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for your call. Didn't know you were going to get all kinds of bee questions like that. <laughs> Those kind of. Well, to see if you could if you could do this one. Okay. Uh, John email says, "Can your guest talk about the changes in bee genetics due to chemicals in the environment?" I've read that the bee DNA has become messed up. Uh, now, again, I think. A lot of people are familiar with honeybees and the pesticides and all that, but you know anything about this? Uh, keep this one short. No, 
I don't know. <laughs> yeah. so, but I will say you could contact, uh, there are some folks studying bee genetics at Penn State University, uh, Dr. Christina Grosinger, um, and they have a large extension program. And so I would direct any bee-related questions to them. Okay. Well, we're coming to, to bee, when we're talking about bee biology. Bee biology, right. Yeah, your re research was not into bee biology so much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about the decline in the wild bee population and steps that are being taken to sustain that population. Our guest today, Dr. Eric Lonsdorf, a professor of ecology, evolution, and behavior at Franklin and Marshall College, and Claire Kaufman, orchard manager at Kaufman's Fruit Farm and Market in Lancaster County. We welcome your questions and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Also, uh, you can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Uh, let's see, what else do we have? Uh, we've got a lot of emails here, which is good. Uh, Lamont says, just a note to say that many organizations are working with farmers in the area to install native trees and shrubs along streams called forest stream buffers. In addition to water quality benefits of these buffers, they also provide restored habitat in the middle of the farmland for pollinators. You know, we've talked about this many times, a lot of times in relationship to the cleanup of the Chesapeake Bay and farms along the Susquehanna River, those buffers. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting and I'm sure a lot of people have noticed that uh, a lot of these things kind of cross-pollinate, if you would, hmm. if you will, uh, that it's good for not just wild bee habitat, but also for clean streams and the environment, the e ecology overall. That's right. So Absolutely. this speaks to kind of this idea, again, of ecosystem services, those benefits we get from nature. And so those stream buffers can provide multiple services at the same time. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do with these uh, kind of bee models is that if we can start quantifying how land use change and land cover change affects, um, you know, bee populations and crop pollination, we can integrate that into kind of the, the quantification of those benefits. So the, there's a lot of hydrological knowledge out there that allows us to make those to kind of be very precise about those stream buffers and their their impacts and and so we're trying to kind of kind of bring that uh, predictive ability into also bees as well so we can account for multiple services I want to go back to one thing we were talking about earlier we mentioned that uh, there's been this increase in uh, corn uh, but row crops like corn soybean what are some of the others and why have we well, we know corn, but why have we increased uh, row crop planting of, the, of those other crops? Well, there's a demand for for food. I mean, the soy, soy, and and corn. There's obviously a huge demand for those things. I think that's, so that's kind of the, the short answer. Okay, uh, Claire, do you want to add in, uh, anything on that? I would say too. It, you know, just it's a grain-based food system, and that's that's what the demand is for. I mean, un unless there be a demand for a more perennial uh, food cropping system. Uh, you know, that's, that's the way it'll be. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Claire, I want to get back to something you had said earlier about uh, the use of pesticides. How often or how much in the way of pesticides do you use on your crops? Okay, well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll trace back just, just a bit to get some, get some framework here. So traditionally, uh, we, have, we have looked at the window of bloom as the main 
time when we need to be very careful about what we use um, so as not to harm the honeybees. Well, if, if suddenly we realize that the honeybees are not necessarily uh, the best thing going for the orchard and we're looking more to the wild bees, all of a sudden we're looking at the entire growing season um, and what the effect of various insecticides especially have on these wild bees. And this is an area that, that is in need of a lot of research um, because, you know, it, it, it's fairly new um, in terms of, you know, we all know the neonicotinoids are, are bad for the honeybee, but we don't know how some of these things affect, you know, the vast variety of species of wild bees. Mm. So, yeah, back to your, back to your question, uh, you know, we, we uh, practice integrated pest management and, um, if you'd like to find out more about the detail of how we manage our orchards, you can find that on our website, coffinfruitfarm.com. Mm-hmm. But um, just to say that we we um, we follow we follow basic the basic framework of, of what's called integrated pest management uh, for orchards, um, which utilizes quite a few tools in a toolkit, and pesticides being one of them. So pesticides being used as as one of the tools in the toolkit requires you to look at your other tools and 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 more or less use the pesticides as a last resort, so that um, so that you actually don't kind of like the kind of like what uh, Eric was saying earlier. You, you can you can you can destroy your ecosystem services. There's a lot of beneficial um, organisms in the orchard that if you're not aware of you will destroy with your use of pesticides. Now, I also understand that uh, one of the things, and I don't know whether you've experimented with this or this has become practice, that uh, you apply the pesticide sometimes at a different time of the day, like early in the morning, correct? Yes, that's correct. And this is especially so uh, during bloom when we we do get honeybees in. Um, You know, we like to, we like to, we like to have everything applied and dried before the honeybees start flying and which you know honeybees are a, a little bit lazier than some of these wild bees and so they don't get out there real early in the morning um but like i said you know that 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 kind of goes against um migraine a little bit because it's like well if if the bumblebees are out there two hours earlier so you know up until this up to this point we haven't been considering them too much um but yeah, typically early morning um, is our preferred preferred time of application. Okay, let's take some more phone calls. Tony is a beekeeper. Tony, you're on the air. Hey, thanks. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Oh, great. Uh, I just wanted to uh, mention. Uh, oh, congrats to uh, uh, Kaufman's for that uh, for that uh, for the efforts that they're making. I mean, that's really great. That's what we need to see. And uh, congrats to the professor on his uh, publication. I haven't read it. I did read, however, a uh, an article in Science last year, I, and I'm I'm at work, and uh, so I don't I can't read I can't get it right now. Uh, regarding the effects uh, of climate change, the uh, warming up of the Northeast, well, the world, the world in general, but America, and the uh, migration of wild bees, and uh, how that's uh, it's just it's just another unfortunate factor in this whole uh, equation uh, and uh, some of the bees that are being displaced are just simply not being replaced uh, 
because of peculiarities we don't totally understand about the way they behave in different temperatures. And I wonder if the professor uh, has read that uh, uh, article in Science uh, and whether he has any comment on it. And uh, I'm going to have to hang up here because okay. I'm in. Thanks. All right, Tony. Thank you very much. And uh, you know, this is a big time. Is it something that was part of your research? Uh, it isn't currently, but it is. Uh, we have just discussed what are our next future goals. And so the two major things that we've been talking about and that the caller just brought up, climate change and pesticides and figuring out kind of how to incorporate them into kind of the future uh, status and trends of wild bees is, is going to be a major focus of our kind of the next few years. And I know that the EPA, as part of the president's uh, memorandum, is now um, going to have a, a new focus on trying to figure out what are some of the detrimental effects of pesticides on wild bees as well. It's something that... Uh, as, as Claire mentioned, has not been considered as much, and so there's kind of a, a lot of renewed effort uh, from the federal government and research to figure out uh, kind of how to relabel and remanage our pesticide use. Now, before you get into your research and have done the research, you may not even want to comment on this, but it would seem to make sense, though, that if we are having a change in climate and that uh, we would have warmer temperatures here in Pennsylvania in the Northeast where these, well, not just in the Northeast, but, uh, you know, throughout the country where these wild bee populations are, that there would be an impact. That's right. And so we will start looking at, uh, so one, you know, what are the range of the bees themselves? For instance, the bumblebee, there's lots of different species. How do their ranges change as climate is changing? Then how does their food sources, so the flowers uh, and nesting sources, how are those going to change? If there's lots of drought, there's probably less nectar and pollen available. So those are kind of the, be the, the factors in our approach to kind of integrate that information together. Mm -hmm. Let's take another phone call from John in Wellsville. John, you're on the air. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I want to bring to this uh, discussion the fact that uh, uh, we can use, utilize what are referred to as bee blocks. Basically, it's just a block of wood with five sixteenths inch diameter holes drilled in it. And I have quite a lot of success with uh, supporting the native bees, and I've, they were uh, sometimes called orchard bees. Mm -hmm. They're small. I have several blocks, and they fill up 80 or 90 percent of the holes there. And then it, I keep the, these things in my carport. I've tried them out in the out in the environment, and they don't seem to be as successful there. But they just swarm in there when when they're doing their uh, putting placing their larvae in there. Mm. Hey, thank you very much for your call. I have one of those too, but it's much bigger. It's called a deck. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> because uh, there are bumblebees all over the place may not be what uh you know the family wants to see but uh, are that, they the big black yep the, those are car uh, carpenter bees. well there's that's carpenter what, bees but yeah. there's also bumblebees okay. around around too so let's see here we have we have a lot of questions a lot of phone calls here so do you want me to follow up on that sure so, that, sure. so what that caller was talking about those orchard bees so what he's providing is good nesting habitat. So if there's plenty of flowers around, there may not be great nesting. And so what he's doing is supplying that. That's kind of the idea of uh, managed honeybees. You're providing a great nesting source, and you plunk it down in the middle of a whole bunch of flowers. And so, All right, let's go to Daphne in Camp Hill. Daphne, you're on the air. Good morning. My uh, suggestion is similar. I was just looking at a magazine for gardening supplies, and I saw a similar kind of hanging thing that is made out of bamboo twigs. 
it looks like a honeycomb. And they talked about it, mason bees that I never heard of before, but mason bees are apparently good pollinators, and they never bite people. Well, right, thank you very much for your call. I don't think they bite them, but uh, they sting them. But anyway, what, what's a mason bee? A mason bee, It's uh, they use the kind of, like she said, they use little holes and tubes, and they... Um, they're called mason because they often put what looks like clay on top of. They plug the hole up. That's where all the the eggs are, and they use little nesting structures, just like the previous caller, just the holes in the. Is it wild bee? Yeah, it is. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Let's I go. Here, yeah, sure. Yeah, go go right ahead. ahead. Yeah. So, in relation to the mason bees, um, there have been efforts in the orchard industry to actually manage them. You know, like we would the like we would of the honeybee, but instead manage the mason bee by you know making these nest blocks and you know, putting them out at certain times of the year and, and um, managing the, the larvae over winter and so forth. So especially in the West Coast, this is, this is starting, to, starting to happen, and I expect to see more of it in the future. Let's go to Connie. Connie, you're on the air. Hi. Thank you for this wonderful discussion. Thank you. I thought you're in, uh, the listeners might be interested in knowing Penn State Master Gardeners and Extension have done a three-year study on pollinator-attracting plants at our Southeast Research Station. And we've come up with a wonderful list of plants that attract a great diversity and, and numbers of pollinators. Uh, and if folks are interested in accessing those, we will have those up on our Center for Pollinator Research site and the, um, also the website for the research station pretty soon. They can also come and, and visit the site at our open house on July 23rd at the research station. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. Yeah, and I would point out, uh, so kind of the study that we provided was this kind of national scale assessment, but there's also kind of there's multiple scales um, of assessments going on. There's sort of this national level for policy, and then a lot of the, you know, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is is the choice uh, research into what individual plants, you know, if we've decided we're going to create more habitat, what do we do? How do we create that in a cost-effective way? And so that those you know um, plant selection experiments that she's talking about are pretty critical in kind of stepping all that down into the farm scale. Mm. Uh, let's take one more call from Becky. Becky, you're on the air. Well, thank you. Um, I am a backyard beekeeper, and I would just like to tell you that if there's anyone interested in your audience and being a backyard beekeeper, I only keep two hives in my backyard, so you can do it in a small you know d- development. And it, there is a class at the Farm Show Complex put on by the Capital Area Beekeepers Association. And it's just an introductory class on Friday, March 4th, from 7 to 9. It costs $5. And if you come, this is some of the questions they will answer. Is beekeeping for me? What is a beehive? Where to buy parts and supplies? Where and when do I get bees? When should I begin? What will this hobby cost? Where can I put a beehive? How do I install and feed packaged bees? Do I need a mentor? Hey, How much honey will my bees well, make? Becky, I'm done. Okay. Send it to our, our com, put a comment uh, or you know list what you just said on our comment section of uh, our description of today's program, okay? All right. Thank and you very you. much for your okay. call. Normally, don't uh, you know promote... Things like that, but it, it does fit in with what we're talking about, and it is for the good in the long run. So we we will do that. You touched on this earlier, Eric, and I wanted to 
to have you talk a little bit more about it. What you did in the research is you pointed out some areas in the country that were really vulnerable to the decline in wild bees. What are some of those areas and what can we do or what are they doing in those areas to try to keep those those bees from dying? That's right. So we, to kind of identify those areas, we looked for areas of high demand for bee services. So where are there areas that are that have fruit crops and those crops are highly dependent on bee pollination. And so one of the kind of hot spots that, that uh, jumped out was the Sacramento Valley. That's where tons of fruit uh, for the country is produced like almonds, uh, but also watermelon and um, tomatoes and things like that. Um, and so then we identified, analyzed the supply based on the habitat of wild bees um, in the area. And we identified areas of mismatch, so where there's high demand but relatively low supply. And those are the areas where a lot of the extension uh, services, like these master gardener is a type of extension that the, a lot of state universities do. And we're working with those state extension uh, researchers. And then a lot of the farmers, like Claire, for example, is a great example of that. Um, and so uh, w once we've identified those places, we'll start trying to improve the habitat in those areas to improve the supply of wild bees to those crops. Claire, do you think that uh, your colleagues across the country will follow your lead? I mean, it seems like it would be in their best interest. Uh, yeah, in fact, I, I, I should say I'm following others' leads because there's those that are far ahead of where I'm at. And uh, I, as far as the orchard industry goes, it, it, it's something that's being talked about a lot. There's ongoing research at the at the fruit research lab, Penn State Fruit Research Lab in Bigroville. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dave Bittinger there uh, doing quite a bit of work on on these things. So, um, you know, it, I, there, there's a publication out of uh, Cornell University uh, called the uh, Wild Pollinators in Eastern Orchards. It's a PDF available online. If you have any interest in in the, the particular ones that are especially beneficial for the orchard and how we're trying to to, to uh, conserve those and work with those, that, that PDF is a great primer on on uh, kind of where, where our industry is at. I want to thank both of you. We only have about 30 seconds left. Interesting conversation. I know our, uh, our listeners are very interested in this. Uh, in those 30 seconds, Eric, what happens next? What are you looking to do next? Well, what happens next is us trying to kind of take this information, improve upon it, because there's still a lot of uncertainty, uh, and then work with the people who make the decisions, like Claire, to figure out how do we kind of take these concepts and start applying them on the ground to make kind of uh, efficient and effective decisions regarding and, the, the supply of bees. And we will have a link. I'll bet uh, Heather, has, uh, my producer, has something on it already. Uh, on our website, witf.org, the description of uh, today's program. Eric Lonsdorf is a professor of ecology, evolution, and behavior at Franklin and Marshall College, and Claire Kaufman is the orchard manager at Kaufman's Fruit Farm and Market. Thank both of you for being with us today. Pleasure. We pleasure. will talk to you uh, tomorrow morning on a different topic, so be sure to tune in.